in the 8th and 9th century AD, there arose a controversy in the Christian church called iconoclasm, or the iconoclastic controversy. And this was mainly centered in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, what was known the Byzantine Empire. And in the Byzantine Empire, there was this trend that began to happen in worship to use images of Christ, either glorified or resurrected or, or, or any of these you know, images that we think of of, of Jesus in, in more modern art, that as the church had grown in its favor and its freedom, art had really flourished and they were able to incorporate these images into their worship settings. And there became a huge division, a fracture in the church over whether or not it was okay to use these icons, these images in worship. And you ended up with people on one of two extremes. There were those who believed that it was okay to use the icons, to use the images, because it allowed them to have a visual representation of Jesus in their worship setting to fix their minds on, to fix their attention on. But then there were those on the other extreme that felt like worshiping before these images was actually worshiping the images itself. And this resulted in a a massive divide in the church and different emperors would weigh in on it. And eventually, in 787, they ended up being this, this ecumenical council where this process was condemned and the use of images was reestablished. But even so, it would continue to be an issue in the Byzantine world for another couple of centuries. Now, if that bit of church history was new to you or doesn't really matter to you, then congratulations. (laughs) You are recognizing that there are things that appear in the church world throughout time that centuries later will not be a big deal. That the things that we get frustrated about in our current generation oftentimes are not that big of a deal long term. Now, there's truth in that there are certain things that pop up that we do need to be mindful of. You know, Montanism, modalism, um, Gnosticism, all these isms, right, that happened in the first couple of centuries, they were incredibly important to squash them, to, to confirm what the overall you know, creeds of the church would be based on the teachings of the apostles and the, and the scripture that they wrote down inspired by the Holy Spirit. But over the centuries, we have found ourselves at odds over worship practices. And as a result, we have fractured the church and we have failed to compromise. And we talked about this last week as we started this part of our series of being suspicious of the supernatural when we were talking on tongues. And in our first part, we spoke on kind of the things that scripture had to say about speaking in tongues. And we also looked at kind of how the, the, the idea of speaking in tongues really has two parts. And we talked about the difference between talking in spiritual tongues or glossolalia or speaking in earthly tongues or, or natural tongues, right? Which is xenalia, okay? And so this idea, we, at the end, we settled on this big truth that we must learn when to compromise to keep the church from its demise.
because now more perhaps than ever with the age of technology the addition of of all these wonderful media tools that we have with televisions and computers and sound systems and electricity and the internet all of these things have added together to connect us in ways we never have before but in the same way we have never been more divided than we have been as a church we are divided over our ability to um, to get along on our, our preferences and worship right uh, there are people that will say oh if I um, end up coming to a church and they only sing the hymns then they are not progressive enough they are not modern enough and I'm not going to enjoy that service because they only use a piano and a hymn book and there are others that would say man it's so disrespectful to take you know worship and use drums and rock and roll and sound you know flashing lights and auditoriums and so we divide over that we have divisions over the bible translations we use over more modern words or 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 more um and more ancient ones i remember preaching at a church one time and i taught from the new living translation and i had uh, a sweet lady come up to me and tell me that she really wished i would have used the king james version because if that was good enough for paul then it should be good enough for me as well <laughs> and i really wanted to tell her that paul did not speak english but i just smiled and i said thank you right but these are things that we divide over we we get divided over the 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 way people worship in their services, the way they pray in their services, the way they, um, how uh, solemn they are, or how ecstatic they are, and these divisions in our preferences have have distracted us from our purpose. That the church now has become so inward focused that we're missing out on reaching the world. That it just like Jesus said, we 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 have put a, a basket over our lamp instead of letting it shine before men. And so today, I want to use that beginning idea of iconoclasm, right, of the iconoclastic controversy to recognize that there are things that we fight over that ultimately won't matter. Now, yes, we should stand on the truths of Scripture. We should not compromise on who Jesus is, how, re- how you know, salvation works, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the validity and, and the and the. the fact that the Bible is God's Word. All of these things, we should stand on a firm foundation. But when it comes to all of these minutiae, right, of our preferences, we've got to learn to compromise. Otherwise, we're going to continue to fracture and fracture and fracture. And I, I was thinking about this um, over the last couple of weeks and, and, and you know, getting ready to, to finish this section up of this, you know, this series on oh, talking on tongues, this portion of being suspicious of the supernatural. And I was at a conference and I didn't see it in my area, but I spoke to um, somebody who witnessed it for themselves. And it was so cool that there was a gentleman uh, at this conference. They had a time of prayer where they invited people to come down to the front by the stage to be prayed over. And one of the leaders of this this time of prayer was was laying their hands on somebody who had come to be asked for prayer, and they were speaking in spiritual tongues. And in the process, there was a gentleman on the front row who was overhearing it, and he spoke Italian. And he went to that man later, and my and my friend overheard it, and he said, "You may not realize it, but you were speaking in fluent Italian, and I understood every word." Now this gentleman didn't speak in Italian. 
but through the power of the Holy Spirit, even though this man was speaking in spiritual tongues, this other man on the front row heard it in a natural language. And it was so beautiful to see the supernatural at work. And it's tempting to have that gut reaction to say, well, no, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. But I'm telling you guys, I have seen so many godly men and women who both agree in speaking in spiritual tongues and who disagree with it, who agree with things like, you know, rock and roll, contemporary worship, and those that say, no, we really should focus on the hymns and and, and simply worship. I know people that are devout, solid Christ followers who believe that we shouldn't even use instruments in our worship and we should only worship using our voices. These things are our preferences. And as long as we are divided over it, then we're going to miss the point. So here's what I want to do today as we wrap this up. I want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture, and I also want to take a quick journey through history. Because I want to bring this to your attention. Because maybe, like me, you grew up in a, a church community that did not speak in tongues at all. Natural tongues or spiritual tongues. Glossolalia or xenalia. Okay, so let's work through the process of history because context is always key. So here's the first thing we will just remember some of the things we talked about you last time in case you missed it, just to catch you up on, on what we've looked at in church history. Okay, so as Jesus sends the apostles out with the Great Commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel, we saw this in Mark chapter 16, right? That Jesus said that there will be signs that accompanied those that believe, those that put total trust in Jesus. And speaking in other languages was one of those signs, okay? That they would speak in another language. That was one of the signs, okay? may not be all of the signs, but Jesus said these are the signs that will accompany them, right? For example, one of them was that if you, you know, drink poison or, or get bit by a snake that you won't die, okay? I personally have never seen that happen. But there are accounts of that in Scripture where the Apostle Paul was bit by a snake and he didn't die, right? That was a sign that accompanied his trust in Jesus, okay? Now, as the church grew after the time of the Apostles and we moved into the church fathers, okay, we ended up experiencing throughout this time changes in preferences and questions on beliefs. And as a result, they would continually hold synods or councils where church leaders would get together and they would discuss the issues and bring everything back to the middle and say, hey, is this a truly divisive thing that's that's causing heresy in the church? Or is it just a preference? And sometimes there were both. There were moments of heresy, but most of the time, it was just a matter of preference. It was just a matter of whether or not somebody worshiped in a style that other people liked or not. And then as a result of the the, the question of, of, of which person should become the next church leader of the Pope, right? You experienced the great schism in 1054, which created what we now call the Orthodox Church or Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, okay? And would they have a totally separate system from the Catholic Church, and believe it or not, there are actually at any point in time between two and three popes in the world, but the one we recognize more often is the pope that is the head of the Catholic Church, okay? And so as a result, the Orthodox Church grew, and then of course we're all familiar with what happened in 1517, which is the Protestant Reformation under Martin Luther. Martin Luther started noticing that there were struggles in the church where people were taking advantage of the fact that people couldn't read the Bible 
and that people could not know the truths of Scripture. And so they started selling what was known as indulgences, that basically you could buy your way into heaven or you could buy somebody's way out of hell. If you had a, a, a family member or a loved one that died without knowing Jesus and they were in hell, then you could pay enough money to the church and you could get that indulgence from them. And that was one of the, the 95 things that, that Luther wanted to change to reform in the church. But as a result, the church ended up, the Catholic church ended up excommunicating Martin Luther. And he, as a, as a form of protest, began doing other things and still teaching the, the gospel, but outside of the Catholic church. And this started the Protestant Reformation. And after this man, as, as, as we ended up with this, this war, literally, between Catholics and Protestants. And there was a lot of fighting and a lot of death and killing between Protestants and Catholics. And as a result, though, Christianity was forced as they, both Catholics and Protestants fled to areas where they could be safe and, and be able to practice their, their, their faith openly. They ended up spreading the gospel even more. And of course, perhaps one of the, the greatest movements was when the pilgrims, you know, traveled on the Mayflower from Europe to get away from the Church of England, which was another split from the Catholic Church under Henry VIII, right? The, the, the Catholic Church would not give Henry VIII uh, a divorce of his wife so he could marry another woman. And so he split from them and started the Church of England, which is now known as the Anglican Church, right? We've had all of these splits and divisions over time. And so as a result, man, throughout the, the founding of the United States, one of the core tenets was religious freedom because we wanted people to stop killing each other over the practice of their faith. And so we end up seeing all of these different denominations, Baptist, Methodist, uh, Puritan, Quakers, Shakers, Mennonite, Amish, and over time these have grown to where you've got Episcopalian and Presbyterian and, and, and Lutheran and, and then of course you know, Pentecostalism rose in the early 1900s. And it was the belief that, that God had, had created another movement because after all we've seen many moves of God around the world throughout history. Think of all the great awakenings that we've experienced. Almost every church historian agrees that there have been three great awakenings. Some say there's as many as five, and that we're waiting on another one that's starting now. And what we would see is this: these Quakers and Shakers and many other denominations, where they would have these revivals that would happen. Sometimes out, even there would be so many people they couldn't contain them in the church buildings. They'd have to have them outside, and they started to experience what was known as ecstatic worship. And ecstatic worship was not a new thing, but it was kind of new again. <laughs> kind of like, I don't, I don't know if you've watched fashion, but as I have teenage girls and we go into the stores, I start noticing that the fashions that are popular now were popular when I was a teenager. And things are kind of coming full circle. And the things that were popular when I was a teenager was actually popular when my parents were teenagers. Like bell-bottom flare pants, you know? And so, you know, I... I, I love to, to tease my wife because I, I love it when she wears the flare bottom jeans. She looks so good in them to me. And so, but that was something that reminds me of when we were teenagers and we were dating. And when we were dating and my wife would wear them then, then my mom would say, hey, I used to have jeans like that when I was a teenager. You know, things always kind of come around. And the same thing's true with these divisions. That's, that what's old becomes new again, that, that something will die down and that something new will happen.
And ecstatic worship was one of those things that continued to come around whenever there were mighty, you know, powerful moves of the Spirit. Then the solemn worship that used to happen inside of church buildings with groups like the Puritans, right? This very solemn, standing still, you know, singing with your voices and maybe an organ. And they started having all of these ecstatic worship experiences where they would fall on the ground and convulse and shake. Or they would sit in their chairs. The, the shakers were known for, for sitting in their chairs and like shaking while they were sitting down. And they could they were so they moved so powerful they couldn't stand up and worship God. They had to sit down and shake in their worship, right? And so we end up seeing this happen. And, and there was people that were, were beginning to be so overcome by the Spirit that they were speaking in unintelligible utterances and this gibberish because the Holy Spirit had consumed them. And this became known as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And in 1906, famously during the Azusa Street Revival, we began the birth of, 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 of formally, most people will say this is when Pentecostalism officially started, when it really is a moving target. It kind of built up momentum over a hundred years from the 1800s into the early 1900s. But that's when most people will say this was the start of Pentecostalism. And Pentecostalism points back to Acts chapter 2 and says, in the same way that the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and gave them the, the ability to speak in other languages and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you, after becoming to know Christ, you get given the Holy Spirit, but then there's a baptism or a filling of the Holy Spirit that is a second work of God, a second work of salvation. And in this, we see this. Now, this is what leads us to today, a century and some change later, where we have this speaking in tongues. Now, here's what I want to get at. In the last week, we talked about how there are those that are in favor of speaking in tongues and those that are against it. There are those that say that tongues is for today, and some say that tongues have ceased. Some people say that it is only about earthly tongues, and some people say it's earthly tongues and spiritual tongues. But here's what it ultimately comes down to. As long as, not, as, an, as long as it is not an issue for salvation, it's just a preference. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Do you like rock and roll music? Do you like the hymns? That's a preference. Do you like to have communion with wine or have communion with grape juice? That's preference. Do you like to raise your hands in worship and dance? Or do you like to stand still with your hands folded and your head bowed? That's a preference. Do you like to have a lot of liturgy and prearranged prayers? Or do you like to pray, you know, on your own and with your own words? That's a preference. You know, even when it comes down to some pastors will write their sermons out and read it from a page. And that drives my dad bananas. He hates that. He's like, if you want to, if you're going to read your sermon, just give me the paper and I'll read it for myself. You know, but that's a preference. And so when we look at all of these things, we've got to recognize that it's not about our preference. It's about his presence. And I got to tell you, if you talked to me 10 years ago, I wouldn't be saying the things that I'm saying now. I was much more closed-minded. Now, I have not changed at all what I believe about the truths of the Scripture, the person of Jesus, how salvation works, any of those core doctrines. But when it comes to these external preferences, we as followers of Jesus have got to get away from our preferences and say it's all about His presence. We've got to quit fighting on the inside of our groups and separating ourselves and creating our holy huddles. Just like we said last week, man, we must learn to compromise to keep the church from its demise. Because if you don't know this, the church in America is dying. Faith in God has shrunk to its lowest point in history. The Christian church is dying. 
because we have focused so much on fighting ourselves than helping the world see the light. And now we are slowly dying. As a, a very sad thing, I, I watched a video a few months ago of a gentleman who was an evangelist in Great Britain. And he said that God was leading him to leave Great Britain and to come to be a missionary in the United States because the church in America is dying. And he said that you know he was called to come help bring revival again, to bring another great awakening. And I pray for that too. But we need to recognize that we don't quit fighting amongst ourselves over things that don't matter in the long run. Back in the 8th and 9th century, iconoclasm was a big deal. But on the pages of history, in light of eternity, whether we use a picture in our worship or whether we don't, doesn't matter. What matters is are we worshiping Christ? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we making disciples? So where do we land with this issue of tongues, right? I've given you a lot of history. My goal was to try to not to influence you. My goal was to tell you information and recognize that here's the thing, godly people that I know exist on both sides of the fence. They do. I know people that are are, are trusted leaders to me, that I, I've gone to them for wisdom on numerous occasions, and they don't believe in tongues. They think that there's, there's no need for that anymore. Okay? But I also know powerful preachers and, and, and mighty, you know, followers of Jesus that are just absolutely, you know, obviously you know, filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed for ministry that are, that are doing amazing things, but they speak in spiritual tongues. And so what do we have to do? We have to recognize that it's a non-essential. We have to compromise. And so as we get ready to close up this session on talking on tongues, I want to take you back to 1 Corinthians and go to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. And look at what he says. He's been talking in, in, in chapter 12. He begins talking about spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, he talks about love. And in chapter 14, he talks a lot about tongues and prophecy. Your Bible may even have that as a subtitle for chapter 14. But look at the very first sentence of this chapter. That's what I want to hit on really quickly. He says in verse 1, Let love be your highest goal. We could stop right there, right? Let love be your highest goal. When we look at these divisions, is love our highest goal? If I walk into a church service and people are speaking in spiritual tongues, am I angry? Am I frustrated? Am I distracted and bitter? In the past, I would have. And now I say, hey God, have your way. And by the way, you can you can YouTube this. There have been studies done on people's brains when they speak in spiritual tongues and it takes them to the same part of their brain that people when they go into deep profound meditative trances i love that so whether they're speaking an actual earthly language or not that has syntax and grammar and can be translated that's not the point the point is that we recognize that 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 when people speak in a spiritual tongue man they're worshiping so whether you believe that that's a heavenly language or not man they're worshiping god and if that's not your preference, that's okay. It's not a, a necessity. It's a negotiable, right? It's something we've got to learn to compromise on. We need to let love be our highest goal. And when I look at another believer that has a different spiritual practice than I do, as long as it is not heretical, 
right? As long as now, like I talked about before, there are people who preach that if you do not speak in a spiritual tongue, then you're not saved. That is heretical because that's not an evidence of salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of salvation, right? Jesus said that that you love me if you obey my commandments. And First John, you know, John writes that that we can know that we love God if we obey Him, right? That's what is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. However, if a person speaks in a spiritual tongue and that bothers you, I want you, we should look at our heart. If a person is saying, you know what, I don't speak in a spiritual tongue, if that bothers you, we need to look at our heart, right? Just like we would for any other preference. Let love be your highest goal. But then he goes on and he says this, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives. He's been talking about that, right? The spiritual gifts. We should desire those. He says, especially the ability to prophesy. And we're going to talk about prophecy more in depth another time. But look at what he says. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since other people won't be able to understand you. And I've seen people interpret this passage in favor of earthly tongues. And that would be true. Because if I'm speaking Russian in, in my church community, I don't know of anybody in the church community that I'm part of that speaks Russian. I just don't. And so... Nobody would understand me. I'm only speaking to God. Some people say, see, that's a spiritual language, and nobody can translate that spiritual language, so you're speaking only to God. But either way, here's what he goes on to say. He says down at the very end, at the very end of this chapter, he says, in verse 10, he says that there are many different languages in the world, and every language has meaning. But if I don't understand a language, I will be a foreigner to someone who speaks it, and the one who speaks it will be a foreigner to me. And the same is true for you, since you are so eager to have the, the special abilities that the Spirit gives, seek those that will strengthen the whole church. So if speaking in tongues is not a gift that you have, seek the ones that will edify the whole church. Prophecy, service, preaching, right? But I love what he goes on to say. And he says, now at the very end, he says that, Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to be to evil, but be mature in understanding matters of this kind. And as he goes on, he talks about orderly worship and all of these things, but he also says this, man, of all the things that we can do, love is the greatest. He says that in verse 13, right? These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. So whether you prophesy, whether you speak in an earthly tongue or a spiritual tongue, whether you preach and teach, whether you are a, a servant, whether you have you know the ability to the, the spiritual ability to have a word of knowledge, right? Or you can perform miracles of healing. Whatever you seek to do, love should be your highest goal. And if in the middle of all of these things, if you're if you look at all of this information, you say, "What, well, James? I still don't believe in spiritual tongues." Okay, that's not the point. The point is, is love your highest goal. At the end of the day, if you say, you know what, I, I, I do believe in spiritual tongues. God has done that in my life, and I have experienced it for myself. Wonderful. Is love still your highest goal? Or are we divided over these things? So I hope I've given you some information. There's a lot more we could say about this, right? But I want you to recognize when people talk about speaking in tongues, what are they talking about? Earthly tongues or spiritual tongues? Xenelia or glossolalia? Where did it come from? It began in the 1900s. It gained popularity again after the Azusa Street revivals. But man, it's been ecstatic worship has been around for a long time, not just at the rise of Pentecostalism in the early 1900s. Okay, 
But here's what really matters. When we talk about tongues, is love your highest goal, is love my highest goal. Because if you and I don't learn to compromise, the church is going to die. But if we want to come together, this fancy word is ecumenical, where we say it doesn't matter whether you wear robes or you wear comfy clothes. Do you worship to contemporary music? Do you worship to, to old you know, hymns? Or do you worship to old, even older chants and, and Latin liturgies, right? What do you do? Do you worship in stained glass windowed sanctuaries or do you worship, you know, I'll close with this one kind of silly example. I've got a a buddy that's a pastor in St. Augustine and his church is called Surf Church. They don't have a building. They meet on Sunday morning at sunrise and they surf for a few hours and they gather their surfboards together on the beach and they sing songs to God. They do a Bible study and that's, that's their church. It's a preference. They get in where what, what makes them connect with God. But you and I have got to quit chasing our preference, and we've got to start being more concerned about His presence. We've got to learn to compromise. So I hope this helps. I hope this has given you information on the background of spiritual tongues and, and earthly tongues. I hope you've recognized that there are godly people that speak in spiritual tongues, and there are godly followers and sold-out followers of Jesus who don't. But wherever you land in this, We've got to quit beating each other up over and saying that you're wrong and I'm right, or I'm right and you're wrong. Instead, we've got to say, let's band together and bring the kingdom. We've got to learn to compromise to keep the church from its demise. I pray that encourages you. I pray that comforts your heart. And I pray that love would be our highest goal, to love each other in the church and to love those who who need to know the gospel. Let's go out. And as my buddy Jackie Watts always says, let's go give them heaven. Be blessed.